One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. I'm feeling kind of depressed lately, um, to be honest. I guess I just feel like I spend so much time online and online has just gotten, I don't know, it's never been worse. It's just gotten so dumb the debates, the the uh, the level of rancor and ignorance and stupidity, and um, you know that phrase, "I ain't trying to hear that." He's not trying to hear that. We're not trying to hear that. It's such a good, it's such a good phrase. It nails it. Like, it's not that I disagree with you. I'm just not trying to hear you. I'm not trying to hear that. That's how it feels. It feels like nobody's really trying to hear. Like that's not the point of it anymore. Is to try to hear what anyone is saying, and. Uh, and it wears you down. Like for some reason it's getting to me. I could provide examples, but like, you know what I'm talking about. Like it's, it's, there's five new examples every day. I'm getting through this, uh, a couple of ways. One is just remembering, like, this is an occupational hazard. It's part of my job to just check out what everybody's talking about every day. And don't think that this is the world. Like if it's bad for you, if it's making you feel bad, you just turn away from it. You just like, don't have to spend that much time reading dumb shit on the internet. But I guess the thing that's actually really helped me kind of get through this hump of, uh, of despair is like realizing how lucky we are, how special it is for us at Canada land. Cause we are a place where you can turn to if you are turning away from that level of stupid, mean conversation. Like if you still want to know what's going on, if you are trying to hear, you know, I'm not trying to hear that. I am trying to hear that. Right. And if you are trying to hear things and if you're trying to hear people who are trying to hear each other, we can do that here. And we're hired to do that. And that's not depressing. That's a good feeling to be hired to do that. And, uh, it feels good to know that there are people who 
value that, like that that is a small, like it's it's an anomaly. The mainstream, the big thing that's happening, the thing that has scaled is bullshit and doctrine and dogma and talking past each other is like on a massive scale. That's become an app uh, or every app. But podcasting writ large is a refuge. And this podcast company in particular is a place in Canada to actually hear each other and have conversations. And yes, to challenge things. And yes, sometimes we can reflect some of the, uh, I think, more acerbic aspects of online culture. But like, this is just a whole different thing. This is not a tweet. We put out a lot of talk and uh, it's only good when we care about what we're talking about. It's only good if we listen to the people that we're talking to. It's just not a good podcast if it's like 30 minutes to spout dogma or doctrine or to be not trying to hear that and just telling you again and again what we think. I mean, our job is to be a place for that conversation. So I am heartened by that. It lifts me up. I feel better. I can talk myself out of a funk when I realize we have a really good thing going here. And it's uh, absolutely because a pretty small number of people have just decided that this should exist. We are currently trying to convince more of you to get in on that, to help us do that, to do more of it. And also those of you who are supporting us already to consider upgrading your support or just spreading the word. This is when we need you to to say why this is important, if you think that it is, or just why you like it. So it's crowdfunding month. And what we're trying to do now is bring a little bit more of something that we do not have nearly enough of in this country, which is not just coverage of Indigenous stories, but Indigenous-led coverage, who chooses the stories, who chooses the guests, who does the original reporting, Canada Land Back. This is something to get excited about as well that makes me feel um, excited and optimistic that it looks like with a bit more help we can make this thing with Ryan McMahon. Just got an update as I'm recording that we're like 12% away from that goal. Please go to canadaland.com slash join, push us over the edge and put us to work for you and click on the link on the show notes and tell the world. And uh, thank you. About 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I and our baby moved into little row house. Great street, family-friendly neighborhood, good schools, kids everywhere, little ice cream shop around the corner that had been a local institution for as long as anybody could remember. The next summer, a hitman walked onto the patio of that little ice cream shop and executed a known mob associate named Johnny Raposo, also known as Johnny Maserati. A stray bullet hit a bystander in the stomach. It all apparently began over a grudge and money. Witnesses say the hitman dressed up as a construction worker, walked up to Rapuzo and shot him four times in the head as he was sitting on a patio in Little Italy watching a soccer game in 2012. The homicide investigation into the death of John Rapuzo commenced on June 18, 2012 at the Sicilian Cafe, which is located at 712 on College Street in the city of Toronto. As the deceased John Rapuzo, 35 years of age, was shot to death in broad daylight, in front of a large number of citizens that were in attendance in the area for the Euro Cup soccer celebrations. Here at the university courthouse, jurors are deciding the fate of four accused charged in the gangland killing of John Raposo almost five years ago. Hitman Dean Witchar was convicted of first-degree murder along with the crew who had hired him, Nick Nero, Martino Caputo, and Robbie Alcalil. The motives for the hit were pretty banal, as organized crime stuff goes. 
Johnny Raposo was a rival drug dealer, and the others considered him to be a rat, and they hired Wichar to kill him for revenge and also in order to steal a 200-kilogram shipment of cocaine. So yeah, the motives were pretty boring, but the criminals, the criminals turned out to be pretty interesting. According to crime reporters Peter Edwards and Louise Nehera, these guys were members of the Wolf Pack Alliance, a new kind of crew who those journalists describe as millennial mobsters. Peter Edwards is a veteran Canadian crime reporter with the Toronto Star, and Louise Nehera is a veteran Mexican crime reporter who came to Canada as a refugee. Now, Canada rarely, like almost never, grants refugee status to Mexicans. Our government does not consider their government to be some oppressive regime from which citizens must flee. But it wasn't Mexico's government that Luis Najera came here to escape. It was Mexico's drug cartels, who he was covering in Ciudad Juarez, where a severed head was once placed as a warning at the foot of a monument to murdered journalists. When Luis Najera learned that he was going to be killed for his reporting, he fled to British Columbia, along with his family, and he applied for refugee status while working there as a janitor. He became a Canadian citizen in 2015, but Nehera kept active in Canada as an investigative journalist. And that is how he learned that the cartels are active in Canada, too. And according to a new book that Luis Nehera wrote with Peter Edwards, it was none other than the Wolfpack Alliance that brought the cartels here. That book is called The Wolfpack, and Peter Edwards and Luis Nehera join me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Dan Tate, Dobrilla Bronstein, Andrew McCorkendale, Tamara McNeil, Rochelle Pasco Delorier, Curtis Jansen, Stephen Sloan, and Sam. My name is Sam Brooks, and I'm a journalist, producer, and editor in Edmonton, Alberta. I support Candleland because it has been exciting to watch this scrappy media criticism show that, frankly, I used to find kind of annoying, grow into a robust network that repeatedly punches above its weight with some of Canada's best investigative reporting. Canadians are well-served when they invest in quality, independent media, and Candleland continues to prove how much this investment pays off. I also find Jesse much less annoying than I used to. Snootsy. Just signed some monster contracts. Fuck drugs. Dean Weechar. Yep, that's the life. Just signed a major contract too. LOL. For what? Contract killing. That's my business. Story up, Jake. You don't get paid shit. I figured you right out. LOL. Huh, <laughs> LOL. My minimum fee is 100k. Why you think I don't get paid shit? Let it ride. Peter, when did you first learn about the existence of the Wolfpack Alliance? Um, it was odd because I heard about um, something in Quebec called the Consortium. A uh, francophone uh, friend of mine was talking about the Consortium. And when I looked at that, I saw that a lot of them called themselves the Wolfpack. And then I um, found that they were doing things in BC and that it was outside of Quebec. And so it took a little while for the light to go on. And what was the Consortium as you first understood them to be? 
Uh, it was a group of criminals who could fill in the landscape after the decline of Vito Rizzuto, who weren't from any one ethnic group, who were very, very mobile, who basically connected off the internet and who were focused on cocaine from Mexico and who didn't have a real hierarchy. Like you couldn't say, you know, president, vice president. Um, it was more um, who's useful doing what task when, and that they had built up a fair amount of enemies, that they actually functioned as a group. It wasn't just um, one enterprise. It was an ongoing business. And Luis, how did you come to be aware of this story of these people? Well, through Peter, we met a long time ago. And uh, at some point, he invited me to join him on this investigation of the Wolfpack. And he started to explain me the dynamics of this group. And some members of this group are people from BC. And I lived in Vancouver for three years. And because of my interest in organized crime, I was very aware of the existence of certain gangs over there. So it was kind of, okay, I started to connect the dots. So who are these guys? And how are they different than previous gangsters that you both have covered? Uh, there's no real hierarchy. You can't make a pyramid. People just fill specific functions, very, very multi-ethnic. Also, they bring in some of the old groups, like you do have people from old mafia groups. There's a full patch Hells Angel who is very involved. It really is an association. It's almost, I'm not trying to glorify them, but it's almost like an all-star team. And the internet is the connector. It's not about geography. If you look at Hell's Angels, they actually have a patch that says what area they're from, and they really stick to that. So people all across the country, Louise really, really helped me there. He really turned the lights on for me on that part of it. You mentioned frequently that they're millennials. Louise, you've said that they have a sense of entitlement, a different sense of entitlement and a different vision. <laughs> I'm familiar with criticisms of millennials as being entitled, but I've never heard it applied to criminal gangs before. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, it's under nature, right? This is a new generation. They grew up with this deep sense of entitlement, regardless of if they are criminals or not. This is something that is, is part of the way they grew up. And in this particular case, they translated that sense of entitlement into criminal activity, which somehow helped at some point, because as Peter mentioned, this is a multi-ethnic, multi-geographic group, but at the same time also facilitated some big mistakes they made. So it's kind of intertwined. The good and the bad of being a millennial collided in this uh, criminal group. I guess the good being that, as Peter was saying, it was really ad hoc and distributed, no clear hierarchy, and tech savvy in, in use of encryption, which I'm sure makes it hard for law enforcement. But also, it seems reading your book that they kind of hung themselves in a lot of the bragging. That, I mean, we're just reading transcriptions that, you know, it almost feels like you're at times like it's just text between friends, but they're talking about assassinations and they're, and they're just sort of openly discussing large amounts of cocaine, I guess a cultural proclivity to grandstand and aggrandize yourself digitally came back to haunt them? Yeah, they needed to be noticed. They actually had a hitman bragging about how much he gets paid to kill people. And I mean, you can get it done for very, very little. It's not the biggest skill in the world and guns aren't that expensive. So, I mean, if you just want the guy dead and that's your goal, it's not that tough. But if the Wolfpack was paying um, someone a huge amounts of money and the guy they were paying wasn't some poor, tough kid from the streets. It was some um, bored kid from the suburbs who had everything but was just kind of bored and empty. And so he dressed up in theatrical makeup and got fancy guns and changed his name and 
did all these spy versus spy things that made him feel exciting and then bragged about it afterwards on the internet so that, again, the, the smart old timers, they don't do a crime and then brag about it. At least not, they don't brag about it publicly. I guess it's like pretty standard to have code names or nicknames in the criminal underworld, but like it does feel like these guys had like video game avatar names. Can you tell us some of those names? Well, like Zelda, the Hitman, the Executioner. Um, they were there are things you'd have to go back to PlayStation Four and find someone who plays that to find what they're using, and then they change their name. You know, when they got in trouble, the name would change to Run and Hide, and um, and they and you'd go from male to female. Like a female name didn't mean it was a female. If they weren't talking about doing terrible things, it was kind of entertaining. And I'm, you know, I think like a thousand different films and news stories have me thinking that the criminal underworld is very ethnically segregated. But as you're explaining, like you've got Portuguese members, you've got like French Canadian white guys, Irish white guys, Punjabi, Italian, Chinese. It seems like there was, I don't know, a a lack of racial prejudice or a willingness for, for people to work together. Yeah, that's interesting because we're in Canada, right? So here it's a very diverse, multicultural country. And particularly this generation that they were born or, or most of them were born here, they they are used to this environment of multiculturality, right? So it's part of this, uh, also part of the generational situation. However, they are also related or tied by greed, and that's also a significant uh, bonding among them. It's interesting because some of them, they have really bad stories at home. For instance, uh, the, the alleged leader of the Wolfpack, uh, Al-Khalil, he, he came uh, escaping prosecution with his family. So uh, you may think, okay, these people, they maybe tried to do something better here, but at the end, they were seduced by greed and and they found another people who suffered something or faced something similar. And, and that facilitated somehow the communication, the uh, integration, and at the end, the result on this multicultural group. Al-Khalil. Can you see what they have at Hermes? I want to buy some shit for my store. Nero. Okay, what you want? Belts, bags, shoes? Belts and a couple purses. Okay, I will try for belts. Okay, any purses that come up, I'll buy. Not the 40K ones, LOL. 19 to 15K. Fuck, more people should rat on us, LOL. It's interesting, even when you have people who are more traditional organized criminals, like Full Patch, Hell's Angel, Amero, but not the long beard and the leather. You write about Amero as somebody who uh, had a kitchen that would make Martha Stewart proud with gleaming cherrywood shelving, granite countertop, stainless steel appliances, uh, high-end watches, uh, nicely dressed, guys who trafficked in, like, Hermes bags and things like that. These criminals don't look like the criminals in the pantheon of underworld thugs that I think people are necessarily familiar with. Well, and his Hell's Angels stuff in the closet was really tidy. He hung it on the right kind of hangers and like he was cleaner than I ever was, you know, as a kid. Take us through just the rise and fall of the Wolfpack Alliance. Like how big did they get? What were the mechanics of their operation and how did it all kind of come tumbling down? Uh, They um, started on the West Coast. There are so many different crime groups there that you have to form alliances or, or you're toast. But the trouble is when you form an alliance, you inherit the enemies of your new ally and you don't know who they are. 
And so it just becomes everybody's against everybody and you're going to make a lot of money but die very young. So a lot of them moved east, I'm hoping for a little more sanity and a little more stability. A large group of the real key ones got arrested for first-degree murder in a really spectacular murder on College Street. I think the Wolfpack, I mean, they still are around, though. I mean, I heard um, recently of a guy who moved from Vancouver to Toronto. They still are out there. It's a very um, fluid sort of group, and it's not like um, taking down an old mafia family or a you know Mom Boucher for the Hells Angels. And when they got in trouble. One of them went to West Germany. One of them went to Greece. One of them was found chopped up in pieces in Colombia. So they're very mobile. And so you can't really get rid of them. It's sort of like squeezing a balloon. You know, you do something, but you haven't really, like they're not gone. What does it take to be a member of the Wolfpack Alliance? It's sort of odd because it's almost like you just identify as a member and you, you make yourself useful. And so there were different spellings. I mean, there was two words, one word. Um, there was one guy who kept calling himself Wolfpack, but nobody else called him Wolfpack. But he had a lot of money, and so they wanted to be around him because he could invest in drug shipments. I mean, the Hells Angels have so many rules and, and other bike clubs. There, there's one club called The Rock Machine, and they have maybe a dozen members in Ontario in their constitutions, 40-something pages. Like, they've got rules for everything. But these guys are, it's more like, can you make money for us? Can you be useful to us? And Luis, how big did they get? Like, I guess we're talking about just cocaine shipments, marijuana, stealing cocaine from other drug dealers, assassinations, connections with traditional organized crime. Like, I guess just whatever they could get into is the kind of crime that they did and how they made money. How big did they get? Well, they have some relevance within the organized crime world in Canada because they were able to ship 110 kilos of cocaine, uh, 95% pure from Mexico. So that means that they have a capacity and they have an infrastructure. They have connections. They have people in airports. They have even pilots, commercial pilots offering their services to them. So that means that they have a structure, they have the possibilities and they have the connections. That means that they were able to achieve some power, influence, so to speak, in the criminal world. Again, the same things that helped them to grow were the same things that eventually led them to fall. Because if you don't have a structure, if you don't have a hierarchy, if you don't have defined chain of command and so on and so on, think about that. It's like a chain. It's a weak chain that you can easily break from in the inside or uh, even from the outside. So uh, that's kind of uh, the analogy that I can find to, to explain. It has some strength and power, yes, but still it is not the most effective, the most uh, strong uh, chain that you can find. And how exactly did that chain break? In the case of the Wolfpack, the... Well, we can say naive, we can say dump, I don't know. The fact that the police found uh, a sticky note with a password that led the police to open a series of uh, messages and to intercept communications, that facilitated everything. So that can give you an idea of how weak the chain is because they don't have like uh, people intercepting uh, like large containers at the border or things like that. No, no, it was just a sticky note in an apartment that led them to, to fall. Right. Encrypted messaging is very strong and very difficult to decrypt. But if you have the password, you can read the messages. Exactly. It's super easy. Just to type the password and then voila, you have it, right? This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. 
We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Zelda. Okay, yeah, I'm flying there anyway, so I'll bang that one off for you. NP. Ice Cream Boy is getting it. You can have the gap brought to me in dot. Also, can you make sure it is a 45 and or 40 cal? And I will get the ride. College Street is heaty. But if I get him inside the shop, it's okay. No noise. Why are we killing ice cream people? Nero. We split the load three ways. Me, you, little guy. That only thing is once we pick them up, we have to get him. He's the biggest rat in the world. I told him, don't tell anyone I'm doing this for you, but the retard can't help his big mouth. He calls little guy on straight phones to talk like it's a PGP, lol. Maybe in kind of a lightning round format, I could just name some places and we could draw listeners a map of organized crime in Canada. I'll name a place and one of you just shoot out what the significance of that place is. Are you game? Yeah, sure. sure. Sounds good. All right. Burnaby. Burnaby, very interesting point of connections. And unfortunately, a place where several members of uh, organized crime groups in that area have been uh, murdered. And not a big mafia presence. Like it's yeah, uh, no. it's open open territory for other groups that aren't mafia. Burnaby or the Surrey area uh, actually is it's included in the in the foreword of the book. One day I was driving in the middle of the night and I found a container with marijuana in the middle of the street. So that keeps you like a idea. large a large container that somebody had left for a drop off. You right? Uh, probably, or it just fell off from a truck or something. There were cars in the corners, kind of waiting, probably something to happen, and that's when I decided to leave because my initial thought was, okay, I'm gonna go and take a photo just to keep it for my files. But then when I realized there was uh, people watching, I said, well, I think it's better to leave. Woodbridge, Ontario. 
Uh, very, very big in the Ndrangheta, the um, one strain of mafia, and very politically interested and very interested in real estate and business. Very well-dressed and kind of older. Ganawage. Border crossing. It's sort of a white cop standout pretty clearly. Montreal. 385 miles from New York City and traditionally a great place to smuggle and very, very established groups. Once I talked to a Hells Angel in Ontario and he said, if, if it's me and you, um, we can talk. If it's me and you in Ontario, watch your mouth. If it's me and you in Quebec, you know, shut up and don't look at me. So they're taken seriously. Yeah, Montreal is one of the most important, not only for trade, but it's one of the most important places all over Canada. Information that we have from, uh, even from New York, we know that the connection between New York and Montreal is massive in terms of organized crime. Even, even in Mexico, criminals in Mexico, they know where Montreal is. And one thing that particularly facilitates operations from cartels, from Mexican cartels or Central or South American cartel is there's a large Spanish-speaking population in Montreal because of the connection with French. So that also facilitates uh, interactions. Mm. Uh, Hamilton. Pretty rough and ready old mafia leaning towards um, New York State. Some very tough guys out of the East End. And right now, really key people are gone and it's a bit up for grabs. It's had a flavor of corruption for a while now. I was once told that the, the airport in Hamilton was built basically as a hub for organized crime. The Hamilton stories like just go really deep and really far back. And, you know, they joke about how the economy's down. We had to lay off a judge. I mean, it's um, <laughs> like Hamilton, even like the criminals don't quite get all that's going on. And but there have been some big ones, you know, Musitano, Violi, Lupino, Papalia. You know, big, big names and the closest big city to New York State. You know, when you, you're heading down there, that's where you go. And there's a, um, I've been some unsolved murders that are organized crime that are kind of statement murders. I mean, a lawyer got murdered from putting someone into a witness protection program. It hasn't been solved and you'd think it'd be pretty simple. How about Kingston? Oh boy. That's kind of grad school for the people who go to Melhaven or Kong Spay. There's a lot of connections made. These, Wolfpack guys, though, they, they didn't really go through the prison system all that much. Some of them did, but the smartest one we found was 25 years old and had stayed out of custody. So the um, Mill Haven's tough place, called, it, nicknamed Thrillhaven, uh, Collins Bay, uh, nicknamed Gladiator School. I mean, it's... Um, Gladiator School. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, it's a pretty tough place. But that's kind of the older guys, like a lot of the, the older ones, once they've been through there, they decide that maybe it isn't that much fun and maybe there are better things to do. And, you know, I've got a little house and I've got a nice motorcycle and my wife loves me. You know, let's just leave it at that. Like, I don't want to go back here. So Kingston is corrections and prisons and juvie going back to the 1930 and that's where people learn how to be criminals. I'd say so. Yeah. And, and also now with this... Uh, new wave of criminals coming to these kind of prisons. It will be very, very interesting to see and to understand how these new dynamics and interactions between younger criminals happen while they are in jail, mm -hmm. which is completely different than the older guys. You know, one group has one area, the other has another area, and they don't mix together. And now it's different. Again, this new generation, they have a, a new way of integration and, and communication and it's going to be very very interesting and no uh, no smartphones in jail no and one of the 
big Wolfpack guys has taken pretty fair beatings in there already. No steroids either. Like you go back to your natural size. So um, if you're all pumped up with steroids, you're going to be shrinking a bit. I guess we didn't mention that when we were trying to describe sort of the culture of the Wolfpack. These guys, are, they're, they're gym rats. Yeah, you want to look good in an expensive t-shirt. It's also, you know, this part of this new um, culture. Uh, for instance, if you remember the old guys, uh, when you think about um, a, a mobster uh, from the old time, is like a chubby guy, you know. Mm-hmm. It seems almost like, a, like almost like a teddy bear, like a criminal teddy bear. And now that changed. Now you have these ultra fit guys and they do business and they do some arrangements while they are doing CrossFit or whatever. More Jersey Shore than Tony Soprano. Exactly. <laughs> You're absolutely, yeah. How about Vancouver? Vancouver. Well, another extremely important port of entry for drugs and whatever you want to bring into Canada or taking out to other places. Sometimes it's complex how relationships between criminals work there, but I guess it's part of the the size of the business. In the past, you have one group controlling the whole thing. Now they have to learn how to work together somehow, right? For instance, in Vancouver, you have Hells Angels, you have Independent Soldiers, you have the Red Scorpions. You have several groups working together and sometimes fighting together. But Vancouver is is very, very interesting. And the mafia doesn't have a real presence there that counts for much. Facing Asia, does that influence the nature of Vancouver as a criminal hub? Yeah, you have Richmond. You know, the old joke uh, in in Vancouver, right? Uh, How far is India from China? Oh, just cross the river, the Fraser River, because it's Richmond, and then you have the Fraser River, and then you have Surrey, which is the largest uh, Punjabi population. So they are all, all mixed, and they learn how to integrate together. Also, Vancouver at least in the past, was kind of safe haven for the families of drug lords from Mexico. Uh They enjoy sending their families there because of the safety and they don't don't drag a lot of attention from the police. Uh, And of course, because of the nature and and so on, they like to send the the family there for seasons. uh, Well, that stuff is nice no matter who you are. Yeah. Finally, Toronto. Uh, It's got a bit of everything. There's a lot of real estate, a good place to invest, but it's got everything. I mean, like every kind of group is there and there's something anonymous and you can live in a really expensive condo, do bad things and nobody knows you're there and have a nice quiet life, reasonably quiet life. Toronto is somehow uh, similar to Panama City. Uh, When I went to Panama City uh, a few years ago, I had some good conversations with people there and they told me, well, this is pretty much kind of a hub for organized crime. They respect each other here. They talk. They do business. Sometimes they don't get along well, but they respect. They know that bringing a lot of attention from the police to the city is not good for all of them. So they try to do business and and kind of stay with a low profile. Sometimes here in Toronto, well, like we uh, presented in the book, well, there's people dying here. And, uh, well, that's part of the job description if you want to be a mobster. Coach. Done. Wolfpack, he's dead. Souza. Dude splattered, eh? 50 cal in the fucking head. Then he dropped. And the guy walked up and plugged him on the floor in the head. If he lives, I'm gonna kill myself. But half his brain was on the floor. LOL. LOL. Luis, 
What is the connection between the Wolfpack Alliance and the Mexican cartels? Basically, it's a commercial relationship. The cartels, now they also, with the time, they evolve. Think about uh, Costco. They have a warehouse. Everybody can go, and if they have the membership, you can go and buy whatever you want. It's similar in organized crime. They have, again, these hubs like Cancun. So they go there, they talk, they make business, they make connections, and they arrange everything. So that was the relationship, more a commercial. But at some point, the people from the cartels in Mexico, they found they can take advantage of the ambitions of these Wolfpack members. And they said, okay, let's work together. But at some point, they noticed that uh, they weren't as smart as they think they were. And they decided to, okay, we just put you on the side and then took the business into their own management. So that was the evolution of the relationship between the Wolfpack and the cartel. And of course, they found Canada as a good market. And it's, it's a good market not only for drugs, it's a platform. Because here you have Vancouver, you have Asia, you have uh, Montreal, you have Europe. And there's, as Peter mentioned, real estate and a lot of ways of moving your money around. So Canada, is a, it's a very attractive place for criminals. Luis, as I understand it, you came to Canada as a refugee fleeing the narcos. Um, were you surprised to find that, you know, that they're here? You came here and, and they're here too? Um, no, no, because again, I've been following this cartel since the 90s. So it was just a matter of time. It was a little bit surprising to me how easy the Wolfpack was detected by the police. I mean, with that sticky note. <laughs> so that says, well, in Mexico, you cannot do that kind of mistakes. Probably if Nero or one of these guys were a Mexican guy in Mexico, he probably will be disintegrated, basically. Chop it in pieces and that's it. But the presence of organized crime here, I learned about it as soon as I arrived to Vancouver. And then... I started to follow that from there. But now through the Wolfpack experience, it was more like, okay, now I can understand better where we are at this process of criminal evolution in, in Canada. Peter, how extensive is the cartel's presence in Canada? The cocaine, the amount that comes in, it's, I mean, that's where it comes from. A big thing I got from Louise is that um, we're talking about a lot of cartels. I thought there was a half dozen and he, he was talking about cartelitos where they keep breaking into smaller groups and, one thing we got looking at drug shipments was that the cartels held back cocaine in Canada. So they'd, they'd move a certain amount in, but they'd hold back, say, 40% and sell it later. And that would allow them to play with the power balance here, like how much you sell someone, what price you sell it to them, how pure it is. You can really alter things and you can keep someone from getting too powerful. And so there's not a whole bunch of boots on the ground, but there are very, very smart people living nice open lives and meeting at nice places, and they're not running around shooting people. You write in your book that the cartels see Canada as a hub for expansion into Asia and into Eastern Europe, so that's a benefit as well as being a, a comfortable, stable place to launder fortunes uh, made through the drug trade, and somehow a place that's compatible with, I guess, a new cyber age of criminality? Yeah, because here, on top of the geographic location of Canada, that again, it, it's a hub, it's a platform. The technology that you have here, you don't have it 
in Mexico, for instance, the 5G networks, the accessibility, computers, technology, gadgets, and so on and so on. Also, those kind of things facilitate operations here. Actually, there's one case from one guy in Vancouver who was arrested because he was supplying encrypted phones for criminal purposes. So that's uh, also a big plus of settling here in Canada. There's no CERB for mobsters and gangsters. You write a little bit about how the pandemic brought the supply chains to a halt, lockdown borders, affected smuggling, and the impacts that had on organized crime. What are you seeing now? Is that world reconstituting itself or are they still kind of reeling? Well, they've done pretty well. I mean, they've um, done better than most mainstream businesses. And if you don't get as much through, you can doctor it with fentanyl and you, you'll kill a few people here and there. But, you know, you keep the business going. And now with uh, borders opening up, it's all the better for them. And also the, the other thing is, okay, the border was closed for regular people like you and me. But the border has been closed always for them. Mm -hmm. So they found ways to cross that border. Like what? Well, they have tunnels, they have drones, they bribe people at the border to allow them to cross. They have submarines. There's a lot of ways to bring drugs from Colombia, Bolivia up to Canada. And you can liquefy cocaine, um, dip clothing in it, bring the clothing across and nobody's the wiser then you take it out again like the smart ones are um, are pretty good with their chemistry yeah yeah of course actually i was checking uh, statistics from cbsa from the canadian customs and the amounts of cocaine that they have seized at the border at the canadian borders it wasn't that big of a difference so that means that the flow continued people are fascinated with crime and the podcasting world, it is consistently the number one thing that people are interested in. Louise, since the government in Mexico declared war on the cartels, over 60,000 Mexicans vanished. And, you know, every year pre-pandemic, I would go to these journalism gala type events where there's this solemn part of the evening where we go through the world and talk about how many journalists are killed in each country. And then we get to Mexico, and the number was always the biggest number by a very wide margin. We're talking not just about people who are in the narcotics trade, who are the casualties of this drug war, but tens of thousands of innocents and journalists just trying to do their jobs. How long can Canada stay the safe, nice haven, which is still completely interconnected into the global drug trade, if the cartels continue to expand their influence and, and continue to see opportunities in Canada? I don't think there's going to be like a massive explosion of violence here because, again, cartels, they have a lot of years doing this business and they know that in order to survive, they need to have safe places and war zones. Mexico is a war zone, but Canada is a safe place. So they don't need to bring the heat here. And again, there's going to be violence for sure. Of course, there's always violence because they are not selling lollipops, right? But I think Canada is more of public health problem. That's the problem. It's a public health issue rather than a super criminal issue. The opioid epidemic and... And, and, and the cocaine, the, the cocaine, because again, if there's five, six, seven guys who are able to bring into Canada rocks filled with 
two tons of cocaine, that means that there's a market for those. The difference is, yeah, you have the opioid crisis because it's more visible, but you have also problems with cocaine use. But again, it's part of the public health issue rather than like just criminal issue. Peter, we just heard that Canada is likely to remain a safe haven, but the jumping off point for your book was a brazen murder that, you know, incidentally took place around the corner from where I lived at the time in a family-friendly ice cream shop where people like to watch soccer. Do you agree that we're largely insulated from the kind of mayhem and, and just, you know, brazen kind of public slaughters that have been plaguing Mexico? I mean, everything's relative. There was a murder um, in Kelowna where a woman was paralyzed as well. And so one thing we're seeing is a a cowardly type of murder. I, I know an old former Hells Angel who talked about how you had to walk right up to the guy and how that took a certain amount of, of nerve to get right up and almost feel the guy's breath before you do it. I did a book a long time ago with Michelle Auger, the La Presse reporter who was um, shot a half dozen times by someone connected to the Hells Angels. And he was extremely brave where he was going to retire and he kept on working for a while just to make the point that he couldn't be scared out of his job. And through what Michelle did, and I think he deserves a lot more credit than what he's got, laws did change, people did toughen up, and it showed the criminals that there are consequences. I know when people get angry at journalists, they have to decide, is this guy worth 25 years of my life? life to um, do what I want to do to them. And generally, they think no. Peter and Luis, uh, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you. That's your episode of Canada Land. If you liked it, it is crowdfunding month and the clock is ticking. Please support us now. Go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. My email is jesse at canadaland.com, and I read everything that you send me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com, where you'll find all of the different podcasts that this network publishes. This episode was produced by Tristan Capicione. Additional help from Sharice Suturin. Special thanks to Jordan Cornish and Archie Mann. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can find them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do... Now's the time. Please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. 
Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.